thank you, Barbara, for uh, arranging this evening. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity for me to to speak to this audience with my good friend from graduate school. Um, we did meet at, in grad school, and um, we've been very good friends since then. But this is actually the first time that we're actually going to talk about each other's professional work. Um, I have no idea what he does, and he doesn't really know what I do. We've just been personal friends, and so I'm very much looking forward to his talk as well. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to uh, start by talking about, uh, well, this, uh, I, I don't have time to talk about my entire book today, but I'm going to talk about the part that uh, regards uh, parenting, money and parenting. Um, and let me start with an introduction about why we're doing this. This is uh, the happiness, the field of happiness science, okay? So one of the basic assumptions um, of studying human behavior is that is the pursuit of happiness. It's written into the constitution of many countries, um, but we argue that actually what makes us happy is very much you know unknown, right? So now there's like a scientific scientific way of identifying you know, what um, makes people happy. Um, and we, this is being uh, done in like, disciplines like sociology, economics, political science, history, psychology. Right? So really we're you know, trying to, ask, to, to answer this burning question of what makes people happy. Okay? And there are many ways to do this. And equally important is what makes people unhappy. Right, so happiness versus unhappiness. So the way I approach this is that because we're social scientists, you know, we 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 like come up with statistical models. Um, typically, we have like a happiness on the left hand side is the is the one that we're trying to explain in uh, statistical modeling with many many variables that come into the right hand side. And typically, we'll look at like very big factors, like macroeconomic factors, uh, country-level factors like GDP, unemployment, inequality. Uh, these are the macro stuff. And then the micro stuff will be like money, marriage, children, education, employment. So these are uh, what we call the usual suspects. Um, <clears throat> but again, today in particular, I'm going to focus on money, marriage, and children. All right. So... Let me start right away by getting into the topic of money and happiness. And we'll start with the big picture of um, GDP. Right? So we, we, take, we take GDP on this side and life satisfaction on the other. This is like a macro data set of um, 176 countries. And you can see that overall there's like a general positive correlation, right? So. The, uh, the better off countries um, are generally happier, right? So there's a general, at the macro level at least, there's a positive correlation. Um, but what's interesting is that what happens when you track these countries over time, because then you have this different picture, and this is here we're looking at the case of Japan, where in the post-war period, you know, the GDP per capita has gone up, however, life satisfaction has remained completely flat, right? So... Um, this was discovered in a paper um, written in 1978 by an economist called Richard Easterlin, and uh, it's come to be known as the Easterlin paradox. Right. So uh, this is this just happens to be the case of Japan, but it is confirmed in other industrialized countries as well. Right. USA, uh, European countries, 
a, a big disconnect between uh, economic well-being and subjective well-being, right? So what makes people happy? Uh, so the conventional assumption used to be that we are happy as long as we're rich, that we're better off, uh, and money is like there's like a direct connection between money and happiness. Um, <clears throat> but this is true, but only up to a certain point, right? So as you can see from uh, the Easterland paradox, you know, there seems to be, like if you track these people over time or countries over time, there's going to be a disconnect. And so the big question at the macro level, at least, is like, why do we see this disconnect uh, between money and well-being? Um, and at the individual level, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, we have psychologists and biologists who contribute to this as well. That's what makes it interesting, is that it's very interdisciplinary, is that so our happiness is actually determined at birth, you know, 40 percent. I mean, so the 60% of this is pretty much determined by our DNA, right? So, um, you know, that says a lot about what kind of parents you have, but depending on how you interpret that, you can say, well, an optimistic way of saying that you, you still have 40% that you can control, right? Um, and that's probably the part that we're looking at because that's the, the unexplained part from the biology. So I say, well, that's pretty promising. There's still you know, some, some way to maneuver our happiness. Um, does, make, does money make us happy? So now looking at the individual level, um, <clears throat> we see something very similar to the Easterland paradox. So it does make us happy, but only up to a certain point, okay? So uh, economists have done many simulations on this, and usually, like in the U.S. and Japan, it's like U.S. $70,000 or 7 million Japanese yen is, is the saturation point, which means that beyond that point, okay, so it's, happiness goes up to that point, but beyond that, incrementally it becomes, you know, the boost of happiness becomes smaller and smaller, right? So we call that the saturation point. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, this is a very, very interesting question about does, does money make us happy and, you know, how, why do we reach the saturation point, what's happening at, around that point. And one of, the, um, one of the discoveries has been that, you know, there is this thing called absolute income, which is how much money you make, absolutely, but there's also this concept of relative income, which is that people are, you know, social creatures and we make social comparisons. So you start comparing yourself relative to other people. And I can show you this cartoon here that, okay, if you can't see your way to giving me a pay raise, how about giving that guy a pay cut, right? So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm happy as long as I'm making more money than my reference point. It could be my brother, uh, my neighbor, uh, my classmate, etc. And people are always making these social comparisons, right? So, like, <clears throat> for example, if, you're, if your household income is $100,000 and you live in San Francisco, well, that's like, you know, that, that's not a whole lot. I mean, you're still pretty miserable because everybody around you is making so uh, a very high income. But if you live in, a, in a, you know, a place with lower income, then you're relatively well off, right? So it depends on the social context because people are always making these social comparisons. Okay, so um, let me um, talk a little bit about the point of children, family, life, and happiness. And I took this from um, 
One of my favorite uh, artists, uh, John Lennon, has a little lithograph about the happy life. Um, but things are not as you know, straightforward as you might think it is. So here we have um, a very well you know, documented relationship between aging and happiness. And typically we have this U-shaped curve, right? So, you know, you're like, I don't want to give away my age here, but I'm actually at the very, very bottom of this curve right now, <laughs> around here, where you, know, you start off pretty happy in your young ages, and then you get married, you have kids, you have lots of constraints, you go, th you go through a midlife crisis, you know, and then your happiness starts to recover afterwards as you reach old age and then you die, right? So, um, and you can see that the red line and the blue, they're, they're, these are, there are very few gender differences at this point. Um, <clears throat> but this is a very, very typical U-shaped curve. And you can also like, pin, you can almost pinpoint at which point, at which age, your happiness will bottom out, right? Um, and if you want to know that, you can approach me later and I'll do it for you. Uh, so children and happiness is, um, <clears throat> this is a, the controversial point, but children and happiness, uh, pretty much without exception, there is a negative relationship uh, across all countries with very few exceptions, right? So the default is that children, so having kids uh, associated with negative happiness, so parenting has a negative effect on your happiness. But again, it depends on a lot of things, right? So I don't want that to be the punchline. For example, it depends on how old your children are, right? So this is uh, a simulated um, uh, <clears throat> graph of looking at effect of children or marital happiness in Japan. And you can see that, well, your happiness, as soon as your child is born, your happiness goes down, right? <laughs> so everyone's happy. Uh, oh, we're going to have kids, it's going to be a happy life. But then the first effect is that it goes down. And then around the age of teenage years, is that's when the most difficult for parents. Um, and then around the age of 18, la-di-da, right? They go off to college and your happiness starts to recover. So, um, yes, this is, uh, there are some, you know, male-female differences, which, I will, which I'll discuss later on. But there is uh, some aspect of this going on. So it depends on how old uh, the kids are very much. Um, so <clears throat> let me talk a little bit more about the, the context of what's happening here. And I want to introduce you to this model of three types of welfare states. And this is um, a model that is proposed by a Danish political scientist called Esping Anderson. And it's a very, very useful framework in understanding how our social safety net, I mean, who sponsors the social safety net, okay? So looking at around the, the, the different countries, we can think of three different kinds of social welfare states. Um, one is the liberal, which is uh, the market-based. So again, the question is who provides the safety net, right? So in the liberal regime, it's the market. And this is the US is a very typical um, country. Conservative is the family-centered safety net, and the social democratic is the state-centered safety net. So in a conservative regime, um, so what happens when you have kids? Or what happens when your parents become older? Well, the family is supposed to step in, right? Uh, so the family takes care of the kids. You know, Maybe your grandparents come and help. Uh, extended family comes to help. 
It's not. Um, and then when the parents start to get old, the family starts taking care of the parents, right? So that's a very typical family-centered safety net. And the state-sponsored is like a typical, you know, uh, the Scandinavian model where the state plays a dominant role in providing this, the welfare state, right? So here, child care facilities, um, paternal leave, uh, education, health care, all these things are pretty much sponsored by the state, uh, elderly care is ex extensively available, right? So, uh, again, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden are typical examples of the state-centered um, social democratic welfare state. So, um, <clears throat> later on, I'm going to come back to this uh, when, when I talk about Japan, but Japan used to be a predominantly family-centered approach, right? And what's happening in Japan right now is that we're seeing this transition from a family-centered to a state-sponsored model. And you can see that, you know, the transition has come actually quite abruptly. That, you know, uh, for example, in my parents' generation, it was very much, you know, state-sponsored. You know, women stayed at home when, when they had children, uh, and, you know, the, the family took care of the parents when they became old. This has really changed, right? Um, <clears throat> and so the demand for childcare facilities, the demand for elderly care facilities is now, you know, increasing at a very rapid rate, so much so that there's like a big waiting list, right? So the family can no longer be relied on to take care of these um, matters. Um, and so Japan right now is a country that's transitioning, you know, towards a more state-sponsored model. So, you know, does this have, what, what kind of an effect does this have on people's happiness? And this is a, a relationship between tax revenue as percentage of GDP and happiness. Again, this is like a macro level uh, observation. And um, so what we see here is that this is like an approximate, you know, approximation of how much the government spends I mean, how much the government collects uh, on tax, but also like an approximation of uh, how big is the welfare state, right? So countries that have huge tax revenues are typically, you know, um, have a, associated with higher happiness. And if you're familiar with like the, the world happiness rankings, you'll know, you know that like, you know, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, these Scandinavian countries typically come at the very, very top of the rankings. And it has a lot to do with, you know, the welfare state and the tax revenues that they provide. Um, <clears throat> and I can show you that uh, instead, of, instead of going into these results, I can show you what this looks like um, in, a, in a graph here. Um, that uh, if you, the, the effect this has on people's, um, let me see, maybe, no. okay. So the effect it has on people's happiness, depending on where you live, right? So here on, on the, on the x-axis is public social expenditures as percentage of GDP. And so zero is a country that has a very, very low um, or no social safety net. And 30 is a country that has a pretty big safety net, right? So 30% is like, you know, Sweden and Denmark. So those are the countries on the very right. And we're looking at the, uh, the, the happiness of people with kids and without kids. And what happens is that, um, again, you know, people that parents don't, that 
adults that don't have kids by default, their happiness is higher than people that have kids, right? But it depends very much on where you live. And so countries that have very limited uh, welfare support, that gap is significantly bigger. And the countries um, like Sweden and Scandinavia, you can no longer see those differences. So statistically, what we're seeing is that in the, the, in the hash part, there's no, the negative effect of parenting disappears, right? So this is a, you know, <clears throat> it's actually, uh, you can, you know, say that's the countries uh, like Sweden and Denmark, they provide a generous social safety net. They, they provide uh, very generous social, I mean, a family support to, to families with small children. And that has the effect of alleviating the negative effect or the disutility of having children. Right, so the differences disappear in those Scandinavian countries. Um, <clears throat> but I would also say that you know uh, we can't like romantic. Sometimes there's a tendency to um, let me see. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. So oh, one one thing I wanted to point out here is that you know without going into too much detail, what what we see here is that this is the negative effect of children, and you can see that it's only. You can see it only in the women and not the men, right? So this is, again, a universal thing that when you have um, children, there is a negative you know, effect on your happiness, but that negative effect is much stronger for women than for men. So it's not symmetrical, right? And you hear this anecdotally that, oh, you know, women have to do all the work, and, oh, it's so much easier for the men, but... Statistics don't lie, right? And you see this, that, uh, so what's the effect of having kids on men? Nothing. That sounds kind of, you know, dry, uh, maybe unromantic, but statistics, statistically speaking, it's just not significant. It doesn't have a significant effect, positive or negative, whereas for women, it has a, a significantly negative impact. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Okay, and I will say one thing that uh, for those of you that are uh, steeped in economic, I mean, in statistics, there is uh, what we call the negative effect of being single. Okay, so what happens in uh, the like the the very big welfare states is that it is a very very pro family. They have a very pro family policy of being very generous to to families with small children. But at the same time, they take resources away from single people, right? It's like it's it's a that that's the whole title of our book is redistributing happiness. So being single in Sweden is actually like the most miserable place to be, uh, because you know you're you're single, but you're not getting any benefits from the welfare state. You're paying a very very high taxes, right? So this could be good and bad, right? If you if you're miserable and single. What the, the incentive is for you to get married and start having kids. So there is some policy implication here that, you know, uh, if you want to encourage higher fertility, start taxing the single people, right? Make them unhappy, give them an incentive to get married and have kids. Um, <clears throat> okay, I can say more about that, but I'm going to keep going on. So I'm going to... Um, Talk a little bit about the happiness in Japan part. Um, just the highlights, uh, because we're in Japan. Um, 
and here we're looking at uh, a kind of an abridged uh, uh, version of um, the relationship between GNP per capita and happiness. So there is a generally positive correlation. Uh, and if you pull a regression line, it looks like that. But you can also see that it's not a perfect correlation. And you have some, so if this is a regression line, you have countries like Colombia, which lie above the regression line, as well as countries like Japan, which fall behind, I mean, below the regression line, right? So, um, <clears throat> so why do we see these differences? And um, what's, what's happening here is that, you know, controlling for many like macroeconomic factors, still, I mean, Japan should actually be on the regression line, right? But they consistently, the people in Japan, underreport their happiness. And consistently, at the very macro aggregate level, people in Colombia overreport their happiness. Why do we see these differences, right? And this is when we start getting into like what we call positivity and versus negativity bias. And this is like a cultural psychologists have made very big uh, contributions in this area that there's a big part of happiness that can't be explained by macroeconomic factors that there's something innate about, for example, Japanese people, they keep reporting, under-reporting their happiness, right? And because we live in Japan, you might see, you might be able to relate to this because, you know, like these responses are based on social surveys. And if you, if you ask a typical Japanese person, like, are you happy? Anata wa shiwasu desu ka? They're probably going to say, yeah, so not no, 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 no. I am not happy at all, right? <laughs> Under-reporting their happiness. Whereas, you know, places like Africa or Colombia, they might say, I'm really happy. You know, I have a great life. You know, money doesn't matter. Um, so how do we explain those biases? Just people, you know, different cultures have a posit more positive outlook than others. And economics can't explain that. Maybe Matthias can explain that, but I can't explain it, right? There are some cultural, cultural factors in play. Um, and just one issue about uh, from our research that we discovered when we look at the relationship between money and happiness in Japan, um, we find that for men, own income is related uh, with happiness. But for Japanese women, their own income doesn't really matter but it's their husband's income that improves their happiness, right? Which is, you know, it, it says something about the, you know, the, the Japanese marriages is that, so you, it's almost like in a more traditional sense, you know, Japanese women still find status through their husband's, you know, employment status or husband's income. And so that's, this, that's a determinant of their happiness, not necessarily their own income, right? Um, <clears throat> so, um, going back to uh, this point about this, uh, we'll, we'll look again at the Esping Anderson's uh, schema. So, what's happening again recently is that Japan is transitioning from a uh, family based model to a state based model. And um, I remember this when I was. Uh, working in Sweden in the 2000s, um, I was there from 2000 to 2008, and 
quite frequently, we would have these delegations and visits from Japanese uh, you know, policymakers, politicians, academics. They're trying to figure out, you know, how how did they do it in Sweden? You know, so this is, of course, Japan is, is entering this era of low fertility, uh, aging society. Um, and they have to make a very, very clear decision. Should we go with a market-based system or a state-sponsored model? And very clearly, they chose the state-sponsored model. And actually, Sweden is a model for this, right? So we had many, many delegations in Sweden. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so Japan made a very conscious decision uh, to increase their social welfare spending, right? So this is what it looks like now. So huge increase in social expenditures to combat decreasing fertility in the aging society, right? Uh, and it's it's a little bit too early to tell uh, the outcome of this, um, but we actually have a working paper uh, on this topic, and there seems to be um, a pretty sizable impact of uh, you know this government spending, a close correlation between welfare state policy, the generosity of welfare state policy, and life satisfaction. So this is the um, looking at from happiness from 1980 to 2010, uh, that, um, you know, of course, it, it costs a lot of, um, it's, it's significant expenditures to build a welfare state. Um, <clears throat> but it does seem to have a sizable impact on improving people's life satisfaction. Okay, so I'm going to end there and hand it over to my friend Matthias. Okay. So thank you all for being here. I'm very excited to talk today about uh, parenting and happiness and uh, very exciting also for me to do this for the first time uh, together with uh, Hiroshi, who I've known for many years. So let's go to... Okay, so this is going to be about uh, a book uh, I wrote and uh, published a short time ago with my uh, uh, colleague Fabrizio Zilibotti. It's a book about the economics uh, of parenting. And so at first sight, it might seem strange. You know, what do two economists uh, possibly have to say about, uh, uh, about parenting? You know, economics is supposed to be about uh, money and profit, and sociologists maybe are supposed to be uh, in charge of, of parenting. So there are some reasons for doing this. Uh, first of all, uh, families and parenting you know, do matter for economics. You know, the many things that happen inside families, such as education, fertility choice, are important economic factors. Fabrizio and I work a lot on economic growth and development, and so from that perspective, we've been interested in families for many years. But the other more personal motivation for this book comes from our own experience as parents and as children. So, so we both grew up in Europe in the 1970s and 1980s, and uh, our memories of childhood were one of a uh, lot of freedom and uh, independence. When I was a child, you know, we uh, got some food from our parents, uh, they put us to bed at night, but that was pretty much the extent of parenting. You went to school for a few hours in the morning, you got some lunch, and then you went to play soccer, meet some friends. We had our own world as children, there was really very little interference from the parents. You know, homework existed. Uh, I didn't do it much and my parents didn't care about it at all. You know, there was never a question, did you do your homework? It was really my business and uh, they had their own problems. 
nowadays it's completely different. Nowadays parents are very intense. And uh, before I had kids, I was kind of expecting I would uh, follow the same approach that my parents had because I really enjoyed it so much. It was really a lot of fun to be this independent, freely roaming child. I thought that's the right way of doing it. I was expecting I would do it just like that. But then you turn into a parent many years later, and both Fabrizio and I, uh, in our own lives, uh, turned out very different. You know, so now I have three sons in the United States, uh, where many parents are very intense. We have these helicopter parents. And I'm kind of one, too. You know, so now I, I do ask them about homework. I drive them around to all these activities. I spend so much more time on parenting than my parents did. It's called a shocking difference that has uh, this happened there over time. Fabrizio, in his own life, he's a daughter, now in college, uh, had the very much the same experience. So to some extent, we had an interest in, uh, in parenting from our professional perspective, but also we had this desire to understand why has uh, parenting changed so much and you know, why are we doing it so differently from what we have uh, experienced in our own lives. And now we want to use economics for that. And again, it might seem strange, but if you think about it, economics is just another social science. You know, every, everything in economics is about people making decisions. It's about businessmen making decisions. It's about consumers making decisions. But you can uh, use the same way that economists used to think about all kinds of decisions also to think about parenting decisions. And of course, this idea of using uh, economics more broadly goes back to uh, Gary Becker, uh, who was uh, Hiroshi's uh, thesis advisor at, uh, at Chicago, was also one of my uh, members of my thesis committee. Gary Becker was the economist who really uh, brought forward this idea that the economic way of thinking can be applied to all kinds of matters, not just uh, the narrow economic choices. And so, so what we're trying to do here is to use this way of thinking to uh, uh, to apply to parenting, and that's why it's particularly exciting to do this here with uh, Hiroshi, because uh, we really met outside Gary's office waiting for, for the occasional meetings to get some, some insights uh, from Gary about this. So what does it mean to use economics uh, for thinking about uh, behavior? You know, so what really distinguishes economics as a social science uh, is that we generally think of people knowing what they're doing. Now, we think that people have objectives, they want to accomplish certain things, and we think that the behavior actually makes sense as a way of getting to that objective. Now, when you think of uh, using economics to think about firm decision-making, we think the firm wants to maximize profits, and their behavior kind of makes sense as a way of getting to that objective. Now, so it's really about being uh, purposeful, about being broadly rational uh, in what you do. And we want to apply that same, that same idea to, uh, uh, to parenting. So what you have to start if you want to use this uh, idea for parenting, well, you have to start with uh, some notion of uh, what uh, parents are actually trying to accomplish. Now, you might think because we're economists, we're going to talk about money. You know, there's money in the title. Uh, you might think that uh, part of parenting is uh, getting money, maybe through child labor, maybe because you expect your parents will support you in old age. Now, those things uh, might matter in some historical periods, but we, in fact, think that's not really the most important one. The most important one is that uh, parents actually like their children. They love their children. That's why love comes first in the title uh, of this book. We ultimately want our children to do well. You know, so the, the objective we, we are going to conjecture for parents uh, at all times and in different places is uh, to, uh, to, to make sure that your children thrive and do well and have, uh, have happy lives, ultimately. Now, what we're going to try to do then is to give them the, the values, the skills, the attitudes that are going to be uh, leading them to success. Now, of course, 
the key point is that what this means, you know, what are the values, what are the attitudes children will need to be successful, that is going to be a function of uh, the world you live in. It's going to be a function of the environment that you face, the constraints that you face uh, in your life. And when we, when we use economics to think about behavior, we think of uh, the objectives, you know, what you're trying to accomplish being more or less stable, and uh, changes in behavior really being due to changes in constraints. That the world that you face is different, and because the world is different, you make a different choice. And just like a businessman reacts to competition or maybe demand for the products, we're going to argue that, uh, that uh, parents are going to react to changes in the world they face. If there's different constraints, they're going to adjust the behavior. We're going to use this to, uh, to explain how parenting has changed over time. Now, of course, that's just one way of thinking about parenting. You know, saying that people are so purposeful that they are rational in their decisions uh, is one way of thinking about behavior. It might be the wrong way of thinking behavior. You know, so so sociologists, for example, sometimes have this approach too, but often they're maybe a bit broader and say, well, maybe it's not so much about rationality, maybe it's more about culture, tradition, something that's inherited uh, in your society. And it's ultimately a question of, uh, of the data. Now, does the data support this way of thinking? Is it consistent with people behaving in this uh, broadly rational way or not? And so I want to show you some data to convince you that when it comes to parenting, economics actually works pretty well at uh, explaining behavior. In fact, after having done this, I would argue that economics works for explaining parenting even better than most other decisions. You know, and the reason we think this now is that when you think of parenting, the stakes, you know, the importance of getting things right are really high. You know, it's, it's a really important decision. You, know, you really do care about your kids a lot, most people do. Uh, you think a lot about uh, how their lives are going to be like. And so this, uh, this process of thinking about what's the right thing to do is really quite, uh, uh, quite important. It's a big part of your life. As opposed to many other decisions that also matter economically, but are ultimately not that important. When you think, for example, of uh, macroeconomics, a decision that's quite important is saving. You know, how much money do I put in my savings account? How much money do I spend right now? It's an economically important decision, but it turns out not to be one that matters that much to people's welfare. I personally, I'm an economist, but I have actually no idea what interest rate I'm currently getting on my savings account. Now, I've probably not uh, adjusted my retirement savings in two or three years, not because I'm not rational, but just because it, it's really not that important compared to other things I could be worrying about. You know, it, uh, it matters a little bit, but if I get a percent more on my savings account, does it really change my life? No, it doesn't change my life at all. If I do something wrong with my kids, if I somehow you know, uh, uh, traumatize them in some unexpected way, it will have a big impact on their lives and therefore also on my lives. So I, I think about this uh, a lot more. Now, by saying that people are broadly rational, we don't really mean this in a, uh, in a very explicit way. You know, it's, it's not like people have Excel spreadsheets and write down the pros and cons of different ways of, uh, of uh, making decisions on, on children. We're just really saying that, uh, that the process that you engage in ultimately looks as if you're doing this in a, in, a, in a conscious way. And we think of this as really being something more implicit that you, that you kind of imagine the lives of your children at, on an almost permanent basis. Uh, and then you think, well, given this, uh, this future they're going to face, what is the right thing uh, for me to do. Okay, so I want to uh, use this to explain 
something about parenting, so I have to uh, uh, tell you what, uh, what, that, uh, what, what we actually have to explain. Before doing that, let me say one thing the book doesn't do, which is to give you parenting advice. Now, most parenting books are about uh, telling parents that they're doing something wrong, and here's a way of doing it better. But the, the, kind of the nature of the economic approach is not to do this, now, because we do think that people know what they're doing, that they're getting it right. So I'm not trying to tell you, change your parenting. I'm just trying to more just to understand uh, what is going on. Why has parenting changed so much? What are the reasons behind the behavior that we observe? Okay, so but now I want to tell you kind of what's to be explained. So we have to think about, uh, uh, think about uh, what are the big changes that, uh, that have to be explained. Now here's, also, here's a, a three-slide history of parenting uh, from, uh, from Stone Age to the, parent, uh, to the present. When you think of early parenting, uh, from uh, you know, as far as we have uh, written records to about 1800 or so, uh, there's a dominant parenting style, as the psychologist uh, would put it, and this uh, parenting style is called authoritarian parenting. Authoritarian means that the parent has the view that they know exactly what's right to do for the kids, and uh, they're also very forceful in making sure that the kids do uh, what, the, what the parent thinks is right. Now, this could uh, uh, involve demanding obedience, often it will involve also violence, so, so physical punishment of children was uh, very common. So the Bible, for example, says it very explicitly that uh, if, you, uh, if you don't beat your son, you're doing it wrong, so, so it's actually better to be uh, very forceful in disciplining these children. In fact, if you look at all kinds of traditions, different religions, uh, different writers, you find that almost anybody who wrote about parenting uh, before uh, the 19th century uh, recommends that uh, fathers should beat their children. There's, only th uh, there's a historian who's worked on this. Uh, he read uh, 200 uh, books, 200 writers uh, who uh, advise uh, parents on parenting, and only three of these 200 fail to recommend that children should be beaten. And so it was, uh, it was kind of harsh, was a very aggressive uh, form of parenting, quite uh, different from what's uh, usually recommended today. Then things started to change. So, uh, so first you have some, first you have some uh, change in terms of ideas. You have uh, Rousseau having new ideas about what childhood means. You have uh, uh, reformers like uh, Pestalozzi, like uh, Montessori getting some new ideas. And over time, these new ideas actually uh, found their way into practice. So the authoritarian parenting declined over time. It's a gradual process, but it really culminated in the 1960s, 1970s, where what we call permissive parenting in psychology, uh, sometimes also called anti-authoritarian parenting, was quite common. You know, where parents all of a sudden were much more relaxed, where children had freedom, and, uh, and there was much less interference from parents in children's life. So here's a picture of me being raised in the uh, 70s in Germany, barely dressed, uh, out in nature. Uh, Hair not cut, so, uh, so, so that's kind of how we grew up uh, at this time, in a very free and liberal way. Uh, that was kind of fun, but then things changed again. So from the 80s to the present, we have this trend towards uh, more intensive parenting that I've talked about in my own life that we can actually measure in the data. So in, uh, in many countries, many places, we see that uh, parents have gotten more involved again. Uh, and these uh, key word words, uh, helicopter parenting, snowplow parents, tiger moms are, are part of these developments. I don't know if you know the Tiger Mom, so Amy Chua is a professor at Yale who wrote this book about uh, the Chinese approach to parenting and saying that the uh, Chinese way of parenting is uh, superior. So here's a, 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 an excerpt from a book. Is, uh, some things her daughters were not allowed to do uh, is, is the following. So, so the daughters were not allowed to attend sleepovers. They could not have play dates. Uh, they could not get any grade worse than an A. 
except in gym class, where that's acceptable. Uh, they have to be the number one student in every class, uh, again, except gym and drama. Uh, and they have to play the violin and, uh, and the piano. You know? so, so that's a, a very prescribed list of requirements. And you read in the book that she was very forceful in making sure that this was actually a follow to the dot. You know? and, and this was a, uh, it's not just one person. This had a big impact on the debate in the United States where all kinds of American parents all of a sudden had this anxiety. Well, maybe she's right and we're doing it wrong and we have to be a lot more Chinese in our approach to uh, parenting too. <laughs> So you see this, this long-term change from uh, authoritarian. Everybody is very forceful to this very relaxed time that I grew up in and that I was uh, having uh, a lot of fun with, to this more intense phase that we now see in many places. Just to see uh, one picture of the data behind this uh, rising intensity, here's a picture on hours spent on childcare. So it's time-use data where you can see how people spend their time. And uh, I don't know if you can see the details here, but this goes from 1975 to uh, 2012. Uh, on this axis, we have the hours spent per week by mothers on, uh, on childcare, so interacting with their children in various ways. And you see that in all these countries, it goes up a lot over time. It was uh, about uh, 10 hours per week in the United States in 1975, uh, and then is now up to uh, uh, 16 hours, so 60% increase in the hours spent uh, on childcare. Uh, the men spend less, so the uh, scale is lower here. But even for the men, it has gone up quite a bit. In the United States, it used to be just three hours. So American men essentially did no childcare. Then in the 70s, with few exceptions, they were playing golf all weekend. But uh, but now things are different. You know, it went from uh, three hours to uh, now. Uh, uh, eight hours, so more than doubled over this period. So now a much higher uh, intensity of, of time use. And this is during a period where actually the number of children fell. In the 70s, there were still uh, many uh, families with three or four kids. It was the end of the baby boom period, um, whereas now uh, one or two is, is much more common. So the per-child you know, interaction is, is, is a whole different uh, magnitude now, you know, just like in my own life, you know, that I had uh, much less interaction with uh, my parents than my kids uh, have with me. If you break down what exactly has changed, you see that a lot of the uh, change in time use comes from activities that have to do with uh, fostering skills or uh, you know, building uh, performance in some way. For example, playing, reading, talking to kids, helping with homework, which my parents never did, uh, is now quite common. You know? So helping with homework uh, in the 1970s was about 20 minutes on average per week, which means most parents didn't do, didn't do any of that. It was very rare to help kids with homework. It would have seemed strange to parents to help them with homework. It's for the kids, it's not for the parents to do. Whereas now, uh, that's hours per week in, in many American families. Okay, so that's the change we're trying to explain. Now, why has parenting gone from this very authoritarian to this very relaxed and now to this more intense, but intense of a different kind uh, um, uh, style of, of parenting? So here's one graph that's, uh, that's giving you the main ideas of what we think is uh, going on. So we argue that there's really two factors of the economic environment uh, that characterize what the economy is like, that explain uh, most of these changes. And we think of these two dimensions as uh, being, uh, first of all, inequality, so the gap between the rich and poor in the society, uh, which is also connected to returns to education. Now, returns to education in the sense of how much more do you earn if you go to college versus high school. Maybe also how much more do you earn if you go to a really good university compared to an average one. You know, so how much uh, is at stake uh, in, uh, in education. The second dimension here is uh, uh, children's independence, which has to do with factors such as occupational mobility. So what we mean by this is uh, if you are in a world where uh, 
children do the same thing that the parents did, where every son falls in the footstep of the father, there's going to be less independence because they're kind of very closely connected compared to a more mobile world where the children have completely different uh, future lives in, 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 uh, in, in work life uh, than, than the parents did. And so we think that societies differ in where they uh, situate themselves on the space, and this explains uh, what's going on with parenting. So in terms of the facts I've shown you before, we think of this early period uh, of, uh, of uh, authoritarian parenting as being somewhere in this uh, upper left corner. Why is it upper left? Well, first of all, occupational mobility is, is very low because until 1800 or so, almost every child did exactly the same thing that the parent did. Almost everybody back then was in agriculture, was doing farming. Uh, pretty much every uh, farmer's son would do farming too. Every farmer's daughter would be a farmer's wife and would do the same tasks that her mother would have done. So, uh, so there was very little uh, mobility. This matters because if the child does uh, exactly the same thing as the parent, well, there's uh, two, uh, two uh, factors to this. One is that if the uh, child does the same thing as the parent, well, then the parent knows exactly what the child has to learn. So you have the information. It's possible for you to actually understand what are the exact things you have to go through to, uh, uh, to be successful in this life. That's, of course, one precondition for being authoritarian. Now, if you want to be authoritarian, you better know what exactly is it you know, that the children will have to know. So the fact that we have very low mobility is what makes authoritarian parenting possible. The second fact is that the stakes were very high. You have very high inequality. Uh, there's a very uh, big uh, gap between rich and poor, and actually in a situation where the average income level was very low. You know, think about 1800 and earlier. People were very poor. Most people barely got by. You were close to subsistence. If you were dropping off just a little bit from where you are, if you have uh, you know, 20% less income, you probably wouldn't be able to have enough to eat. You know? so, so these stakes were very high. Survival was at stake in terms of getting things right. So, so think about what would happen if, uh, if a child uh, in this early society would deviate from what the parent uh, had in mind for them. You know, if, uh, if a son would run away from home and think, well, I'm just going to make it on my own out there in the world, how would he survive? It would be very difficult to even get enough food. There would be no possibilities of getting other jobs. So if you, if you uh, deviate from the path given to you by the parents, uh, your outcomes are probably going to be quite, quite bad. Think, different example, think of uh, girls getting pregnant outside wedlock. Now, if you uh, all of a sudden uh, are pregnant, you're not married, your life is essentially over. Now, you will not going to be able to, uh, to get married in this situation. Uh, you will not be able to have income to support this child. You know, so whether you and the child make it is, is very uncertain. It really is a huge deal for your future uh, if, uh, if you do this thing that your parents think is wrong. And so if you kind of imagine yourself in the situation as a loving parent, you know, it doesn't seem nice to beat the kids, but you can kind of understand why it made sense. You know, the stakes were tremendously high. If the kids get wrong ideas and, uh, uh, and do something wrong, their, their, their future would be at stake. And at the same time, because they did the same thing as you and you had all the information, it was feasible for you to tell them, follow this exact path and you'll be okay. And so we are, we are arguing that explains why authoritarian parenting was universal in this uh, low mobility, high inequality world. From there, over time, we go to, uh, to the 1960s, 70s, my childhood, where you have a much lower inequality. You know, his, uh, inequality fell tremendously as uh, economies started to uh, industrialize and develop. At the same time, uh, occupational mobility, in the, the, the importance of independence went up, went up a lot. 
You know, by this time, very few children would do the same thing as uh, the parents did, so there would be less scope for being authoritarian. And it also mattered less because inequality was so low. Now, when I was a child in Germany, if you uh, work as a doctor or lawyer, or you work for VW in the factory down the road, had more or less the same income. Now, people weren't really worried uh, about your kid getting the highest possible level of education because there were so many different paths to be successful. You know? And so, so for parents not to be overly worried about what exactly the kids are going to do, uh, it makes sense. Even if you think about uh, kids on path to the university. You know? So if, uh, was, when I was uh, uh, at that age in, uh, in Germany in the 1980s, uh, there was open enrollment at, at university. Now, you could go with uh, any high school uh, passing grade. You could go to any university, almost any program. You know? So if you think about what are the stakes in uh, studying a bit more for math tests you know, when you're 16 years old, it didn't really matter so much. If you get the A or the B or the C, you know, your life chances are the same. And of course, there's trade-offs. It's not really fun. You know, we talked about happiness. It's not really fun to pressure kids to do things they don't want to do. Uh, it's also trade-offs for the children. You know, there's other things for them to do, you know, to maybe uh, do sports, to uh, uh, get their own interests, be creative. Um, you, know, you don't really want to push if you don't have to. You know, back then, you didn't really have to. And so it explains why parents were quite permissive, why they let kids do what they want. Now, things changed again. And if you look at the last uh, 30 years, the big economic change is a huge increase in inequality. Now, so now we have a very large gap again between the rich and the poor. Uh, it's a global trend. Uh, some differences across countries, but it's happening everywhere. Uh, so, uh, so now we have a much bigger gap between the rich and the poor. In particular, we have high, very high returns to education. Now, if you look at the uh, gap in uh, wages between people with and without college, for example, in the United States, it's now really a chasm between those two. Um, and it didn't used to be this way in the old days. If you're now a parent in the United States, you have a real reason to worry about your kids not going to college because the outcomes for those who don't go to college are quite poor. If you think about uh, uh, your kid getting into a, a good school, you also have a big reason to worry about grades you know, because there's now so much uh, intensive parenting by everybody else that it, unless your kid has a 4.0 grade point average, essentially perfect in high school, it's actually almost impossible to get into one of the top 20 colleges in the United States. You know, so, so the stakes uh, in terms of uh, uh, staying on this path of being, uh, of being a successful, say, education uh, have risen a lot and it explains why parents are pushing more because they worry about their kids and they see that if they don't really keep up with everybody else, the outcome is, uh, is worse. Now, because during this change, the occupational mobility has stayed high, you can't really go back to the old ways. You know? So you don't really know exactly what the kids need to know. They have now other things to learn. You also don't have the direct control. You know? so, so most of the important decisions kids have to make, they have to make on their own. They have to, compete, they have to be able to do well in school, later in university, and we don't really let parents uh, sit next to them in school or university and tell them like minute by minute, listen to the teacher and uh, put that phone down. You know? So you have to have a parenting style that uh, makes the kids at some point understand on their own why you know, these values are the right ones to have. And so you have an intensive parenting style that's more, uh, more designed to uh, instill certain values, to instill understanding you know, of the stakes that, that, they, that they face. And, uh, and it's therefore also intense, but of a, of a different kind. So this is how we think in uh, economic terms, in terms of... Uh, people having stable objectives of wanting, people to, uh, wanting children to do well and reacting to the economic environment, this is how we think about uh, how the features of the economy determine what, uh, what parents do. 
you kind of see in this uh, transition over here that it does uh, give you an account for why increasing inequality, like we have experienced in recent years, would, uh, would result in more intensive parenting. Now, of course, that's just a story. That's, that's, that's a theory. And so you want to look at uh, more data to see if the story makes sense. And so uh, so uh, one thing you can do uh, in this inequality dimension, we have actually a lot of differences across countries right now in terms of inequality. You know, there's places like Sweden. We talked about the Swedish, where inequality is quite low. The United States is quite high. And there's everything in between. So if our story is, uh, is true, if it makes sense, we should observe the same difference we saw over time here in the United States. We should also see them across countries today, depending on the degree of inequality. And so to examine this possibility, we looked at a survey. It's called the World Value Survey, where parents in many countries are asked about the uh, values they think are important in raising children. And so they're asked, for example, is it important for kids to be religious? Is it important to be uh, obedient, which might be uh, a characteristic of an authoritarian parenting style? An interesting one for us in particular is the value of hard work. Now, parents are asked, is it important for kids to, uh, to uh, appreciate the value of hard work? Now, if you ask uh, American parents that, many of them will tell you, well, yes, of course, they should work hard. You know, it's important to do your homework and apply yourself. But there's actually some uh, disagreement on that. And, uh, and we're going to think of uh, the value of hard work as uh, being uh, kind of indicative of this authoritative parenting style of kind of pushing children towards performance. So here's a picture of that uh, across countries. Look at this uh, right panel over here. This is, uh, on this axis, a measure of the income inequality in a country from a very low inequality, Sweden's down here, to very high inequality up here. And here's the fraction of parents in that country that say hard work uh, is important. And we have for the United States over here, about two-thirds of American parents think hard work is important. It's there fairly universally accepted that this is an important thing to, to emphasize. You know, I ask my undergrad students the same question, and they are also almost every undergrad student now at Northwestern uh, thinks that, yes, uh, hard work is important for kids to learn. But if you look at the scale, you see it really varies tremendously across, uh, across countries. So we talked about Sweden. Uh, Hiroshi used to live there. Uh, Fabrizio, too, so, so we know this country well. And in Sweden, only 10% of parents think it's important for kids uh, to appreciate hard work. In fact, if you talk to Swedish parents, they will tell you that this American thing of pushing and helicoptering is just crazy. They think it's almost child abuse to be so pushy. They think children should roam freely in the forest and have their own experiences and be more independent and, uh, and creative. And then the other low inequality countries uh, agree with them. But then you go to the other extreme, China, Russia, Turkey, extremely high inequality. In those places, almost everybody thinks hard work is important. So, so these things really do line up very well across all these countries. Now, in economics and in life, there's always trade-offs. So if you emphasize so much hard work, well, you have to emphasize some other things less. And these other pictures show you a bit where the trade-offs are. So here's imagination, here's independence. And you see that in countries where uh, parents emphasize hard work a lot, they have less time or maybe less willingness to uh, emphasize these other uh, values. The Swedish thing that imagination is very important. For kids to be creative, to have their own ideas, to uh, develop independently, that's, uh, that's important. Uh, that's uh, much less uh, on the minds of American parents and almost not at all uh, of the Russian, Chinese, uh, and Turkish parents. So you see that these things uh, uh, you know, move in different directions in a way that very much aligns up with economic inequality. 
Now, we're Japan, uh, and you see that uh, Japan uh, is, uh, in terms of hard work, pretty much where it should be in terms of income inequality. You know? So it has a moderate uh, income inequality at this point, went up over time too, but it's not that high, uh, would predict a moderate level of uh, emphasis of hard work, and it does. It's actually very similar to other European countries, Germany, Switzerland, Netherlands right here, which are similar in terms of inequality and also similar in terms of, uh, of parenting. So it's not really that uh, there's something like uh, Asian parenting you know, that, that some Americans think that there's a, it's a cultural thing about which part of the world you're from. Uh, it does correlate with, uh, with inequality. Now, of course, not everything is just economic. There's also some things that are, have, have other factors. For example, you see in Japan, independence is, is very important. You know, and if you, well, I don't know much about Japan, but what I've read, uh, so you, so you do see this uh, feature that, uh, that here, uh, kids uh, kind of being able to make their own decisions, walking to school on their own, you know, which in America no longer exists, uh, is very important. I saw a bunch of these kids this morning. So, so there's also cultural factors. It just seems uh, in this uh, broad comparison that the, um, that the economic aspects are really quite important. Okay, so that's the uh, cross-country picture. Now, um, one thing you learn in economics that you should never really trust cross-country pictures because so many things vary. And it's still possible from this picture that uh, some of this is still driven by something else. So maybe it's something about Swedishness you know, that makes you appreciate both low inequality uh, and also emphasize certain parenting values. Maybe it's something about Chinese culture that pushes you to the other, to the other extent. There could be something cultural, some tradition uh, varying in the same direction with these, uh, with these factors. Now, one way to examine this is to look at changes within countries over time. We observe uh, many of these uh, countries uh, uh, over multiple years, over decades, and so we can trace out if in a given country inequality changes, how much does parenting in that country then, then change? And uh, that's a lot of statistics, but I'll just show you kind of one picture that summarizes this. So this picture uh, essentially gives you an experiment based on these uh, statistical uh, computations. So here we have a picture of um, the breakdown in uh, Sweden here of parenting styles. This is permissive, so essentially giving freedom to kids uh, and the two intensive authoritative and authoritarian parenting styles, which are currently not very uh, prevalent uh, in, uh, in Sweden. The other bars here tell you what would happen uh, with uh, Swedish parents uh, based on you know, the estimated model if you keep everything the same. So you keep the education the same, the family income, all the characteristics of a family, and the only thing you change is the national level of income inequality now, based on how in Sweden uh, income inequality over time correlates with parenting. And what it tells you is if you plug in uh, American inequality, so it's like you take these Swedish parents and uh, just put them into the American economy, their parenting style switches to looking pretty much like uh, the parenting style of the actual Americans looks right now. now so you have all of a sudden very few uh, permissive parents and you have many more of these uh, more intensive parenting. So, so the slope of uh, parenting inequality within countries over time is essentially the same as the slope across countries uh, Again, in line with the uh, conjecture that uh, inequality explains uh, a lot of these uh, differences in parenting uh, across countries. Okay, so that's what I wanted to show you uh, about uh, the basic uh, idea that economics can explain a lot about this, uh, these differences uh, in, uh, in parenting. There's more aspects to this, but this is perhaps the most important one. 
I do want to mention one other topic. I won't have time to discuss it, but I just want to mention it. Uh, well, is there maybe a downside to this uh, more intensive parenting that we see nowadays? No. So economics says that uh, people know what they're doing, that it makes sense for them individually. But even if things make sense individually, it might still be the case that for society as a whole, uh, we don't really get the best possible outcome. You can think, for example, of this notion of a zero-sum race, that we are really just all being so intense in parenting to compete with others, to uh, beat the other family for the slot at the good university without really making society uh, better off. You know, and uh, and uh, Hiroshi talked about uh, happiness, and we saw in the data that uh, these uh, less intense countries like, uh, like Sweden also have higher happiness and have less uh, of a downside from parenting uh, on, uh, on happiness. It also kind of indicates that maybe uh, this uh, intense parenting imposes too much stress and really doesn't really make us uh, better off. I think it's an important concern. I want to mention one other, which I think is even more important, which is what we call the parenting gap. And that's the observation that as inequality goes up in countries, not only do you get more intensive parenting overall, but you also get more unequal parenting within the country. And so if you look at the different parenting approaches between richer and poorer families in the given country, you see this gap between these different groups uh, goes up. And there's a lot of uh, different things that you could look at to see that, but it's, uh, it's uh, no matter whether you look at time, at money, or also parenting styles, you see this gap uh, rising. And then it really makes sense from the economic perspective, because if inequality is high, well, then the low-income parents are less able to afford the monetary stuff. They're not able to pay for the private schools and those you know, violin lessons that uh, Amy Chua wants us to have. Uh, you're also going to be able to, uh, not going to be able to have the same amount of time. You know, if you think about uh, spending time with your kids, well, you have to be able to free up time from other activities. You know, if you look at the upper middle class families, families in the United States, you see that they are now uh, paying a lot of other people to do things they used to do themselves. You know, in uh, even richer families in the United States, the men used to change the oil, they used to clean their own car, the kids would mow the lawn. You know, there was a bunch of uh, stuff done that now you pay other people for to some extent to free up time for more childcare. You know, and uh, if, you're, if you're poor or if you have to have two jobs just to get by, of course, you're not going to be less able to do that. Now, now this, uh, this parenting gap, and there's many dimensions, but I won't show them, this parenting gap is a, is a real problem because it means that this trend to higher inequality that we have seen globally in recent decades will get even worse. No, if the uh, poorer and richer kids don't get these same starting conditions, if they have a very different uh, uh, initial upbringing, then there's a real risk that social mobility will go down and inequality in the future will, uh, uh, will be even wider, uh, even bigger gap between rich and poor uh, compared to what we have now. So I think that's, uh, that's the uh, real concern about these recent trends in parenting that we might uh, make these uh, trends in inequality uh, even more self-sustaining. I don't want to conclude with a worry, but also with an opportunity. So, so the, same, uh, the same economics that suggests we can explain what parents do also gives us a way to think about the possible answer. Now, if it's true that, uh, that parents respond to incentives to the environment they, uh, they face, well, you should be able to look at the environment and design it in a way that makes these uh, parenting gaps uh, smaller. And what we can really see is uh, from the uh, variation of parenting uh, across countries, this is not that hard to do. And we see that even today, in this uh, relatively highly unequal economy, there's places such as Sweden, which we uh, talked about before, and other European countries, where the parenting gaps are still small and where parenting is less intense. And so you can look at uh, what policies they have in place, what institutions uh, that can explain these differences. 
So you might think about educational policy, about the welfare state, about taxation, about various aspects of the environment that parents face, that they, uh, that they look at to understand uh, what can be done. And so in the book we talk a lot about uh, kind of learning from various countries to see how uh, some of these concerning trends uh, could, be, uh, could be counteracted. There's other stuff uh, in the book, but uh, um, I think I want to uh, conclude here. Thank you very much. Uh, this is coming out in Japanese next year, so if you want to read it in that language, uh, we'll have that uh, ready for you. Thank you very much.